Broadcasting live from atop the Rocky Mountains, the crossroads of the West. West. You are listening to the Liberty Roundtable Radio Talk Show. Show. All right. Happy to have you along, my fellow Americans. Sam Bushman, live on your radio. Hard-hitting news the networks refuse to use. No doubt continues now. Uh, This, my fellow Americans, is the broadcast for November the 13th in the year of our Lord, 2023. This is our two and two, and the goal always to protect life, liberty, and property to promote God, family, and country in the traditions of our founders. Using the checks and balances, one of the brilliant solutions at our fingertips, the supreme law of the land, the Constitution for the United States of America as our guide. That is the blueprint for liberty, folks. Let's never forget that reality check. Before our guest, quick update. We had John Stubbins on the radio with us the other day. He's host of a program called Indivisible with John Stubbins, johnstubbins.com. He's also on Hunt Channel TV with our dear buddy uh, Ted Nugent on huntchannel.tv as well. And they're putting together a plan where they're joining Pursuit and Pursuit Up over the next couple of weeks. That'll get them a lot more homes where you can watch their broadcasts. Um, He also says, join us. At my Patriot uh, event, it's going on at the Trump National Golf Course in Sterling, Virginia, on November 17th. That's this Friday. You can get tickets at johnstubbins.com. And this event is a special fundraiser for a movie they're putting together. The documentary film is called American Anarchy. It highlights how we're turning into an anarchy and a tyranny all at the same time by those who would destroy America. The goal to release this before the next year's election to help us kind of understand what's at stake and most importantly, what we can do about it. In addition to that incredible interview, we also interviewed our dear friend, Matt Staver of Liberty Council. He's the lead attorney over there, been a dear friend for a long time. And we talked about the Southern Poverty Law Center and there's a crucial SPLC lawsuit. So Matt Staver, Liberty Council, suing the Southern Poverty Law Center We talked about that. We also talked about 20-plus state attorney generals have literally doubled down and says, hey, the SPLC has been discredited as a reliable source. CNSnews.com with that piece. The Southern Poverty Law Center has a hate list, and it really puts all kinds of people on it that don't belong there, including me. Anyway, I digress, except for that was a great interview as well. It's in the archives. Check it out. Without further ado, our dear friend Lowell Nelson, Campaign for Liberty with us, and ronpaulinstitute.org. Welcome back to Liberty Roundtable Live, sir. Uh, It's good to be back with you, Sam. Thank you for having me. Ron Paul, as always, writes such riveting, spot-on, relevant columns. This one's no different, Lowell. Yeah, he's, he talks about how the support for the war in Ukraine is unraveling, uh, you know, and, and, and in, in making that statement, he's, he's also explaining how the swamp creatures in D.C. are um, operating. They have a gimmick to foment continued support for that war. And already the U.S. has spent more than $100 billion there. That's B, B as in billion or boy. 100, over $100 billion in Ukraine. So Biden's handlers, he, he writes, have hit on a gimmick to convince us that this foreign aid is actually an investment in our own economy. 
right? So in his recent television address, Biden explained that as we transfer more weapons to Ukraine, we then will build new weapons at home to replace them. That, explained Biden, means more American jobs and a stronger American economy. End of quote. In other words, folks, aid to Ukraine is not really foreign aid, foreign welfare. It is domestic corporate welfare for the military industrial complex. <laughs> well, do you feel any better now, folks? <clears throat> well, there is no denying the fact that this nearly two year war between Ukraine and Russia has been a boon for the U.S. weapons industry. Yeah, no argument there. That's true. Profits are back to record highs following the slump during the COVID scamdemic. And, and for those who follow the money, Ron Paul explains, quote, the money that goes to the weapons manufacturers also saturates Washington, D.C. A little of it goes to the think tanks that promote war. Another little bit goes to the political campaigns of candidates who promote war and so on, <clears throat> end of quote. So, folks, most politicians will tell you that war benefits the economy. You know, someone, Sam, someone told me this just a week or two ago. I could hardly believe my ears. Doesn't everybody know the broken window fallacy by now? <laughs> I thought to myself, this fallacy was first explained by Bastiat in his essay, quote, that which is seen and that which is not seen, end quote. That's, that's the name of the essay. <clears throat> Locals can easily see what happens when a broken window is replaced. Let's just talk about this fallacy, right? So you have a broken window. The shopkeeper plays uh, or pays a glazier for a new window and he pays installers to install it. And so what you see is that the shopkeeper gets a new window, the glazier is is paid money for because he produced the new window, and the installers that installed the new window, they get paid because they installed the window. So it looks like the economy is just booming because of the broken window, right? <clears throat> what is not seen, however, is what the shopkeeper might have done with that money had he not been forced to replace the broken window, <laughs> right? That's what's not seen. Perhaps he would have invested it in a way and, that created... And what all the downstream results of that are, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, what, what, he, what he might have done with that money to create more wealth and more jobs might have been far more productive than, <clears throat> you know, just fixing the broken window, right? So that's the broken window fallacy that it's what yeah, another way to what, say that by the way is there's a hole in my bucket dear Liza dear Liza right <laughs> yes that's true it really oh, highlights man. that reality is the, is the point there it's a little fun song you sing around a campfire but it, but it illustrates the same point though that you know what folks you can't pretend that part of the equation does not exist to do so uh, is derelict in understanding economic reality lol Unfortunately, Ron Paul continues here. He says Biden is not alone in these gimmicks. The new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, appeared on Fox News recently to tell us that sending another $14 billion to Israel is Republicans trying to be good stewards of the taxpayers' resources. <laughs> Can you? <laughs> right, trying to be good now stewards of the taxpayers. there's a big hole in my bucket, dear Michael, dear Michael. <laughs> That's for sure. His gimmick is 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 that they will cut 14 billion from the IRS and send that to Israel 
He says, quote, instead of printing new dollars or borrowing it, this is Mike Johnson speaking, instead of printing new dollars or borrowing it from another nation to send over to fulfill our obligations and help our ally, we want to pay for it. What a concept. We are trying to change how Washington works. End of quote. <laughs> well, Sam, that's just lies, lies, and more lies. They are not changing how Washington works. They are not paying for it by sending the money overseas. They are doing what they have always done. They steal from the poor at home and send it to the rich in foreign countries. Ron Paul and concludes they pretend, his... Hold on, they pretend we have the money for it. To say that we're not going to borrow it is a lie. Because even, again, we're going to play games with money now. So we'll spend this $14 billion. We don't have to borrow for that, but we're going to have to borrow somewhere else to get that in the first place. Um, when you're $32 trillion in debt, it's not possible to do those things without borrowing, doctor. Or, I'm sorry, lol. You, you can't <laughs> That's pretend... Right. Uh, I'm thinking of Dr. Ron Paul and Dr. Scott Bradley all at the same time, right? Y you can't pretend, though, that this money is isolated and that we don't have to borrow for this piece of the pie when you're borrowing to float your whole budget. At what point do you say which dollars are borrowed and which ones aren't, low? Well, great question. Great point, Sam. Absolutely right. You know, and so Ron Paul concludes his column by suggesting that we stop breaking windows <laughs> and that we end all foreign aid and all corporate welfare. Howdy, boy, that's the, that is the solution. Amen. And in fact, that is the solution in, as specified in the Blueprint for Liberty, our Constitution, right? There is no warrant in our Constitution for, for foreign aid or for corporate welfare. Absolutely none. In fact, there and are yet, warrants against it by nature of saying, <clears throat> look, we must declare war. Uh, Congress has to mm -hmm. do that. Congress controls the purse strings. The House originates bills. And there's all kinds of evidence that would warrant they don't have the authority more so than they do. And because the states did not vest that authority in the general government, they have no authority to do what they're doing. They, 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 it is simply untenable, Sam, for them, for the U.S., to be giving money to foreign countries. There is no provision in the Constitution for their doing that, right? But it's a paper barrier. And, and this is, and, and so because it is a paper barrier, they can ride roughshod over it if we, the people, do not insist upon their adherence to the Constitution, right? It's a paper barrier, but at least at least it's on paper, a common understanding that everybody can have about what the general government can do and what they cannot do, what it they're prohibited from doing. It should be written in doing. our hearts, uh, mm -hmm. Lowell. It should be in our hearts. Uh, the headline from Ron Paul is this. Don't worry. It's not foreign aid, folks. It's corporate welfare. Uh, and the idea <laughs> here is it doesn't matter what you call it, Lowell. It's wrong. It's unconstitutional, and it must stop, says Ron Paul. And boy, how do we agree. This incredible column is at lewrockwell.com, Lowell. Yes, uh, absolutely right, Sam. And, and uh, you can find it just by going to lewrockwell.com and uh, scan. They have a number of great articles, like a dozen new articles every day, Sam. And every almost every one of them, I, I really enjoy reading and, and find a lot of common sense <laughs> at lewrockwell.com. So, um, yeah, let's, one let's of the follow. Sites taking, the news taking center stage, you got to dig it. But you know what? Downstream from this spending by Mike of $14 billion and everything else is a lot of killing. Let's talk about that as we skip the break lull. Okay, Judge Andrew Napolitano wrote an excellent column that was posted at ronpaulinstitute.org last Friday, just three days ago. 
And after reading the column, I thought to myself, you know, just think how thing, how different things would be if we had more judges like him. Now, I don't know if he's an active judge at the moment, but he was a judge. He served on the bench for a number of years, and that's why we call him Judge Andrew Napolitano. He pulls no punches in his column. The title of his column is very simply, Unconstitutional Killings. And the opening paragraph is also straightforward. Quote, the Biden administration is killing people openly in Ukraine and Gaza and secretly around the world. It has continued to use the killing machinery crafted by President George W. Bush, expanded by President Barack Obama, and employed by President Donald Trump. These presidents have used drones and other unmanned projectiles to target persons in foreign countries with which the United States is not at war, end of quote. Now notice that these are with countries with which the United States is not at war. So Sam, we don't have, I mean, I mean, don't we have a protection in the Bill of Rights uh, against killing people? <laughs> have you ever seen a, a prohibition against just killing people indiscriminately? And don't we also have a commandment from our God against killing people? There's well, no I think we do. On all fronts. <laughs> That's exactly right, Sam. These yahoos. Well, and it's interesting had, to me that on both sides of the aisle, as you point to these presidents, and as, as Napolitano points to these presidents, on both sides of the aisle, they seem to have the same agenda law. That's right. It's kind of like the Uniparty, right, uh, in Washington, D.C., or two faces painted on the same pig, right? You've got you know, Bush, Barack Obama, Trump, uh, Biden, uh, two Republican presidents, two Democrat presidents, and all four of them are killing people without a declaration of war. They're violating God's commandment, and they're violating the the Bill of Rights, the Constitution of the United States. They swore to uphold and defend. These and for them to do this is committing war crimes, Lowell. Let's be very clear about this. Absolutely right. The Constitution prohibits the taking of life, liberty, and property without due process. And so then Judge Napolitano dives into the details. He says the purpose of the Bill of Rights, these first 10 amendments to the Constitution, is to protect personal liberty by restraining the government. The Fifth Amendment prohibits killing persons, restraining liberty, and taking property without due process. That means a jury trial at which the government must prove criminal behavior. If a country is at war, lawfully and constitutionally declared by Congress, then obviously the president can use the U.S. military to kill the military of the opposing country. And if an attack on the U.S. is imminent, the president can strike the first blow against the military of the entity whose attack is just about to occur. And, end of quote. and then comes this statement, Sam, quote, There are no other constitutional circumstances under which a president may kill, end of quote. Well, you just can't put it more bluntly than that, Sam. <laughs> there is just no other... Well, uh, it highlights no other the moral way. high ground to which America used to adhere to. A, a defensive role was the military, a defensive effort of repelling evil and, and, and protecting our citizens protecting life, liberty, and property. And okay, that was the intention. The second you move from an off, a defensive to an offensive role, you know you've lost the moral high ground. The second you go ahead and take action that you have no authority to take action, you are rogue agents in government. You're out of control and need to stop.
and we the people need to demand it, Lowell. And until we do, it's going to continue, sadly. Judge Napolitano uh, then gives three examples of of these, um, three additional examples of these killings without any authority to do so. President Harry Truman was regarded as, as a hero for using nuclear bombs to cause the profoundly immoral, military, militarily useless, and plainly criminal mass killings of the Japanese. <clears throat> End of quote. He also mentioned President Bush following the 9-11 tax of 2001, who spent $3 trillion and killed a million people in Afghanistan and Iraq without regard for the Constitution, without regard to evidence, proportionality, civilian lives, morality, or human decency. Now I'm going to bring third something up that's going to be very controversial yeah. before the third example we really got to get to in this. So yeah. you said George Bush did this, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I got a question. Why, when George Bush does it, is it okay? When Hitler does it, it's evil. When um, Al Tung does it, it's evil. When Paul Potts does it, it's evil. When, okay, Holodomor is another example. Okay, why do we ignore all those but somehow put on this pedestal uh, how horrible Hitler is? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not defending Hitler. Okay, let me say that again. Don't get me wrong. I am not defending Hitler. I'm merely saying that how is it okay when it's George but when it's Adolf, it's evil. How do we ignore, uh, you know, some of these other examples of these other criminals? I mean, Holodomor was way worse. Uh, or, you know, how is George Bush on the moral high ground? The point is they're not. The point is not to elevate Hitler. The point is to bring these other ones, these other examples into context, Law. Absolutely right, Sam. You can, the, the hypocrisy is so obvious. <clears throat> and we'll be actually talking more about how it is that we Americans in our minds, uh, when we talk about the treasury of virtue in, in the next column, Sam, uh, how, it, how it is that we Americans um, are okay with, you know, when George Bush kills people, but we somehow abhor the killing of people by Stalin or Pol Pot or, or Hitler. So, yeah, this is a, this is a very good What's that good other guy's name, topic. Joseph Stalin, just to not leave somebody out there? <laughs> right. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not defending <clears throat> Hitler in any way. I don't, I don't want anybody to take my comments out of context and say, oh, Sam, no, that's, Hitler's an absolute thug. Okay, these people are despots and evil. Okay, no question, all of them. But I don't see how George is better. I really don't, Lowell. And I know people would be like, oh, my gosh, how dare you make that comparison? I'm going to make it because it's true. How do we think we have authority or the moral high ground? These are unconstitutional killings. If they're unconstitutional, that means they break the law, right? What's the difference? Yes, that's breaking in. Help me get what's the breaking difference. Con yeah, I, I don't see a difference, Sam. I, it's They're breaking the constitutional law. They're breaking international law. They're breaking God's law. And, and on all three counts, whether you're Hitler or whether you're George Bush, they broke those laws. And so I, I, I just don't see any difference uh, really between them. Um, continuing the column here, Julian Assange sits in a British dungeon awaiting decisions on his extradition to the United States because he courageously, lawfully, and constitutionally published documents and videos demonstrating conclusively that Bush's use of drones targeted and murdered Afghan and Iraqi civilians, and his administration covered it up. <clears throat> and I quote. think it was moral of Julian Assange to do so, too, and immoral for the attacks on him.
Exactly. And and that's the uh, it's incredible hypocrisy here. Why, why is it that the, the truth teller, Julian Assange, sits in prison and and those who committed the actual crimes of killing are off scot free? That's that's what's not right, Sam. That's simply un uh, that, that's simply unjust. Well, and it, and if George Bush has the moral high ground, which was what somebody would try to argue against me, then my response would be, well, then why attack Julian Assange? Why not let the truth all be transparent and let us discuss it and debate it openly? If he's got the moral high ground, let's prove it. But he doesn't, and he can't withstand the scrutiny. Is the problem? Uh, Judge Napolitano then talks about Obama. He t he said Obama took this to a new level by murdering Anwar al-Awlaki, who was born in the United States. Um, al was not armed. He was not charged. He was not indicted for any crime. He was never accused of any violence and was not even the subject of an arrest warrant when a drone evaporated him while sitting at an outdoor cafe in Yemen. It's incredible. That's what Obama did. Well, after providing these examples of the abuse of presidential authority, Judge Andrew Napolitano observes that presidents have all the precedents they need. They only need to cal calculate what they can get away with politically when deciding whether to kill somebody. And currently, Joe Biden is shipping guns to Ukraine and to Israel, yet the U.S. Congress has not declared war on Russia or upon Gaza. This is simply wrong. The founding generation believed that, quote, they had crafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to impose sufficient restraints on the federal government, and they believed that the states could peacefully leave a federal government they had voluntarily joined when it exceeded its constitutional powers. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Its language is clear that only Congress writes law and declares war. Presidents can kill only troops in wartime or civilians consistent with due process. End of quote. So sadly, Sam, we the people, the ultimate sovereigns here, we have stopped, I'm sorry, we have not stopped the officers of the general government from abusing their authority. We have not held them accountable for their actions. Therefore, we are to blame. We, we have to take partial responsibility for this killing. So today... The president writes the laws and the rules that let him restrain personal liberty and kill with impunity. And Congress and the American people let him get away with it. Yes, formally, we have a constitution. It's a paper document. It's a paper barrier. But functionally, it has failed to restrain the government. Why? Because we have failed to restrain the government. <clears throat> if a future let's be and, very and so, clear. It's not the principles that have failed us. It's the lack of carrying out those principles. Uh, remember, mm -hmm. you know, they said you have a, a, a republic if you can keep it. In other words, you have got to be involved uh, in the solutions. If the American people, um, you know, don't play their role, uh, then we have a, a problem in the system. Uh, they further said, hey, this constitutional republic that you have, you know, that's what you got if you can keep it. But then it takes a moral and a religious people, and it's inadequate for the governing of any other. So, you know what, we the people have got to be engaged, and we've got to be moral and religious. Now, that's not spe specifically telling you which religion to be part of or even a formalized religion. Uh, the point is we've got to look to God, not government, and we have got to be actively involved. Nothing else will suffice, and this is the proof. Well, and it's chilling to think uh, that we'll, if, if we allow the president to kill people without due process, then we are signing our own 
death warrant. We're giving a permission slip to the government that it's okay to kill me, right? Because, and Apollo Tunnel ends his column with his statement. He says, quote, if a future president uses Bush's lust, Obama's logic, and Biden's hatreds to kill Americans in America, then no one's life, liberty, or property will be secure, end of quote. Yeah, just ask <laughs> Ashley Babbitt if you want uh, to ask. Well, I guess you can't ask her. She's murdered by your government. You could ask mm-hmm. Vicki Weaver. Oh, I guess you can't ask Vicki either. You could ask LaVoy Finnick. Oh, I guess you can't ask LaVoy Finnick either. They're all murdered by the government. You could ask David Koresh. Oh, no, you can't ask Mr. Koresh either. See, the government's got this tremendous track record of pro-death, and it's got to stop on all counts. When it comes to abortion or when it comes to undeclared unconstitutional war, all right, unconstitutional killings, I'm telling you, are war crimes. Lowell Nelson has got more when we come back. I'm telling you, campaignforliberty.org is on fire on Liberty Roundtable Live. Pursuing Liberty. Using the Constitution as our guide. You're listening to Liberty News Radio. USA News, I'm Corey Myers. The federal government faces a midnight Eastern Time Friday deadline for running out of funds, presenting House Speaker Mike Johnson with a challenging situation, much like that of his predecessor, Representative Kevin McCarthy. Johnson aims to avoid a right-wing rebellion while keeping the government operational. Simultaneously, the White House Office of Management and Budget has initiated communications with agencies to prepare for a potential government shutdown, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott has suspended his Republican presidential campaign. He had hoped his personal story and positive message would be enough to elevate his campaign, but he was unable to catch momentum in a crowded field dominated by former President Donald Trump. Tensions escalating in the war between Israel and Hamas. 2024 Republican presidential candidate and former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, on Fox News Sunday, saying the U.S. needs to continue supporting Israel. Us having the backs of Israel is hugely important. Us having the back of Ukraine is important because you've got an unholy alliance of China, Russia, and Iran all trying to intimidate us and intimidate our friends. Don't fall for it. The one thing that all of them fear is when we have an alliance that's strong and that we stand by. The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry claims that more than 11,000 people have been killed in the fighting. I'm Skip Kelly. Today, Donald Trump Jr. taking the stand again in his family's civil trial. He'll be questioned first by the defense lawyers representing him, his father, and other defendants. A state lawyer is also expected to question him on cross-examination. Trump Jr. is expected to testify today and tomorrow. This is USA News. The inventor and CEO of MyPillow is always looking for ways to solve everyday problems. Have you ever picked up a towel set because it felt really soft in the store? But then when you go to use it, it's not very absorbent. It's basically a towel that's leaving you out to dry. That's why MyPillow has developed the MyPillow towels. Towels that work. I know, it's mind-blowing. Towels that actually dry you. The six-piece towels that includes two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths. They come in a variety of colors. And right now, 
now you can receive a six-piece set for only $39.98 with promo code USA. Go to MyPillow.com right now and click on the radio listener special. MyPillow products come with a 10-year warranty and they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. To receive this amazing offer on the six-piece set of MyPillow towels, just go to MyPillow.com. Click on the radio listener special and enter promo code USA or call 800-951-8175. That's MyPillow.com, promo code USA. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to Liberty Roundtable Live this uh, Monday morning. Uh, my name is Lowell Nelson. The, our intrepid host, Sam Bushman, allows me to join him during the 9 o'clock hour on Monday mornings. I appreciate that very much. Here on Liberty Roundtable, we promote God, family, and country because we value and hold sacred life, liberty, and property. We've just been talking about uh, con- unconstitutional killings and the way the U.S. presidency has uh, gone way beyond their authority to kill people, uh, whether it's uh, you know, people in other countries without a declaration of war or people in this country without warrant, without due process. Why is that? Well, I picked an article from uh, Mises.org written by Thomas DiLorenzo that helps to explain this um, this phenomenon, why it is that we can we can give uh, uh, George W. Bush a pass and, 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 and Obama and, and Trump and Biden a pass when they kill people, but we abhor the thought of, uh, of tyrants in other countries killing their people, right, and, and killing other people. Why is it that that we're okay with the U.S. presidency killing people, but not okay with other dictators killing people. I, I, this is really an illuminating column. Uh, it's it's entitled "False Virtue: The Life and Death of American Exceptionalism." You can find it at Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S.org, uh, a website named for Ludwig von Mises, um, and um, it's it's uh, and, and so depending. Uh, on your definition of American exceptionalism, you might disagree with this column. So just let me give you a brief definition. First of all, uh, of when, when when I talk about American exceptionalism uh, this morning, I'm defining it for right now anyway as America can do no wrong. Okay, if we, if we let's just define it that I know there's a lot of different definitions for this American exceptionalism, and I agree with some of them. But for the purpose of this article, we're gonna we're just gonna define it as America can do no wrong. Okay, now with that definition, I think we can discuss this column objectively, and we can learn quite a bit. De Lorenzo is a is a, a, a original thinker. He's a profound thinker. He surprises me from time to time, but I always learn something from him, and I especially like learning history from him. He begins with a quote from an article on the Council for a Foreign Relations website, right? This is a CFR's website, their own website. Uh, this article was entitled, The Future of Dollar Hegemony. And the reason I point this out is because I, I just find it illuminating here that the CFR knows that we have global hegemony, that the dollar has global hegemony. They write this on their website, quote, 
the dollar's global hegemony gives the U.S. government power to impose crippling sanctions and wage other forms of financial welfare against adverse adversaries. In 2022, more than 12,000 entities were under sanction by the Treasury Department, a more than 12-fold increase since the turn of the century. U.S. sanctions do ensure that targeted adversaries pay a significant price for continuing to engage in actions the United States opposes. End of quote. Well, this is a huge number, Sam. More than 12,000 entities were under sanctions by the U.S. Treasury. I mean, I find it abhorrent that we're even forcing a single entity with sanctions because sanctions are an act of war. Not only is it an act of war to force even a single entity, but over 12,000 entities <laughs> is incredible, right? <clears throat> this highlights how sanctions are an act of war that has long assisted the U.S. government in acting as the bully of the world. Dollar dominance is the cornerstone of such bullying since so many dollars are held in so many other countries as their reserve currency. This allows a massive amount of foreign policy blackmailing to occur. And just, I mean, this DiLorenzo just, just, just says it right in black and white. He says also, but a golden rule of politics is to never, ever admit that one is interested in anything but the moral uplifting of mankind, the eradication of poverty in foreign lands, saving the widows and orphans of the world, or some other selfless, magnanimous gesture, end of quote. And, and, and at the state level, by the way, folks, it's always for the children. That's the most common excuse at the state level for these governmental interventionist programs. <clears throat> now, DiLorenzo continues, he says, In the foreign policy realm, one must never speak the truth about the real purpose of imperialistic wars and invasions, as did Marine Corps General Schmedley Butler in his famous essay, War is a Racket. General Butler is Amen. one of the most highly decked <laughs> he is one of the most highly decorated Marines ever. So listen to him explain what he really spent his illustrious career doing. Quote, I spent most of my time, okay, this is Smedley Butler talking. He says, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. I helped make Mexico safe for Americans' oil interests. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers. I, bought, I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests. End of quote. Well, and he could have gone on and on because that's really what American imperialism has done. Uh, for the past 150 years, American imperialism has been cloaked in a monstrous lie about the supposed moral exceptionalism of Americans and their government. But this lie was exposed by the novelist Robert Penn Warren in a 1961 book entitled The Legacy of the Civil War. <clears throat> the most important point of the book is that after the war, the U.S. government claimed to possess what Warren calls a treasury of virtue. Now, this is a term, Sam, that I had really not heard anything about until I read DiLorenzo's column yesterday, this treasury of virtue idea. 
He says the Republican Party, which monopolized federal politics for the succeeding half century, we're talking like from 1860 to, to I'm sorry, yeah, from 1860 to 1910, <clears throat> uh, the, the Republican Party called itself the party of great moral ideas. Well, Lincoln was deified after his assassination. Everything related to Lincoln was all of a sudden sacred and supremely virtuous. No more draft riots. No more massive battlefield desertions. No more firing squads for Union Army conscripts who had deserted. No more mass imprisonment without due process of northern state critics of the Lincoln regime. No more shutting down of hundreds of opposition newspapers in the north and imprisonment of their owners and editors. That's what happened, folks. That's what Lincoln did to uh, to the northern opposition to his policies. No more deportation of opposition party congressmen like Democrat Clement Valindigman. I don't know how to say his last name. Valindigman of Ohio. No more calls to deport euphemistically called colonization. Uh, of all the black people as Lincoln and his idol Henry Clay had done throughout their adult lives. <clears throat> End of quote. So basically that was a list of all of the, um, I guess, abhorrent things that occurred after the Civil War uh, under, uh, well, even during the Civil War because of Lincoln's policies. DiLorenzo suggests that Quote, the deification of Lincoln eventually led to the effective deification of the presidency in general in the minds of many Americans and then to the government itself. Robert Penn Warren wrote that this unprecedented barrage of propaganda created, quote, a plenary indulgence for all sins, past, present, and future, end quote. <clears throat> he wrote that the American state adopted a moral narcissism that fueled the crusades of World War I and World War II. In order to buy into the treasury of virtue ideology, however, one must forget an awful lot about actual American history and fill one's head instead with false narratives concocted by state propagandists. And so here's Warren, uh, Robert, Warren, Robert Penn Warren. He, he has a list here of, the, uh, of, what, of actual American history that we have to forget. He says this, one must forget, for example, <clears throat> that the Republican Party platform of 1860 contained an ironclad defense of slavery. We, one must forget that the War Aims Resolution of the U.S. Congress declared to the world that the war was about saving the Union and had nothing to do with slavery. <clears throat> That's not what people believe today, right? Um, uh, then he says, uh, one must also forget that the Emancipation Proclamation freed no one since it only applied to rebel territory. One must forget that the Lincoln that Lincoln said in one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates that, quote, I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. Go ahead and skip one must continue, Lull. <clears throat> one must forget that in his first inaugural address, Lincoln pledged his support of a constitutional amendment 
which was the Corwin Amendment, by the way, that would have enshrined the protection of slavery explicitly in the text of the Constitution. See, the Corwin Amendment was, in fact, the work of the Lincoln administration, and it passed the House and the Senate after Southern secession had occurred. Lincoln himself instructed William Seward to do the heavy lifting with the Corwin Amendment in the U.S. Senate, and then claimed in his inaugural address that he had never seen such an amendment, but he supported it nonetheless. <clears throat> so, what did the U.S. government do with all of that virtue, that treasury of virtue? Well, uh, three months after the end of the war to prevent Southern independence, General William Tecumseh Sherman was put in charge of the military district of the Missouri, which was all the land west of the Mississippi. His assignment was to commence a 25-year war of genocide against the Plains Indians. Sherman said he wasn't going to let a few thieving, ragged Indians stop the railroads. Well, it turns out, Sam, that Sherman had been given a bunch of stock in the government-subsidized transcontinental railroad corporations. Generals Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan pursued what Sherman called the final solution to the Indian problem, <clears throat> which resulted yeah, in the death. Yeah, and that policy resulted in the death of some 45,000 Indians, including thousands of women and children. Sherman promised to handle the East Coast press should anyone find out what was really going on in the West. See, the Indian Wars were over by 1890. Well, <clears throat> then he goes on to talk about that. But, but Sam, this the Indian Wars, the war against the Plains Indian, this cleansing... They called it uh, 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 an ethnic cleansing of the West that, that uh, Sheridan, Sherman, and Grant conducted. <clears throat> they killed, they just brutally killed at least 45,000 Indians. And I, and I read the book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and I was just heartsick for all of the death and destruction that went on among the Indian people because of this policy that Sherman pursued. Well, the Indian Wars, they were over by 1890, Sherman was dead, and in 1899, the Filipinos finally got rid of the Spanish Empire, but little did they know that they were about to be forced to become part of the American Empire. Their three-year fight for independence was known as the Philippine Insurrection, during which some 200,000 Filipinos were killed by the most virtuous people on earth, American soldiers, many of whom had honed their genocidal skills during the Indian Wars. Boy, Sam, can you just feel the, the satire dripping off of DiLorenzo's writing here? The, the 200,000 Filipinos killed by the most virtuous people on earth. That's well, what he wrote. American <clears throat> exceptionalism, the interesting thing about this discussion is that I don't think the Founding Fathers really referred to this term. Uh, I think Stalin popularized it, believe it or not, as they mock America. The communists have used it to try to mock our way of life, suggesting that we think we're hegemonists or somehow better than everybody else. Uh, again, you know what? We've got to really kind of define terms. So to me, the American exceptionalism, whether the Founding Fathers used the words or not, this idea that we're a unique government, uh, this idea that it was a grand old experiment, this idea that we're going to look to God, not government. When we obey God's laws, we do have American exceptionalism. And that's certainly what the efforts of the Founding Fathers were to trend towards. 
Um, you know, Franklin said if, if a sparrow can't, you know, rise without its aid, do you think a nation can kind of an idea? Um, so turning to God is American exceptionalism. When we obey God's laws, we have American exceptionalism. When we do not, we have lost it. That's the reality check on this whole discussion, uh, in my view, Lowell. Well, and I appreciate your, your answering that question, Sam, because <clears throat> your definition of American exceptionalism, I totally agree with, you know, where where we obey God's law <clears throat> and stay within the proper confines of the Constitution, then absolutely American uh, America is exceptional in the in those cases. But and let's we've be been clear, the, one step further. If any other nation does those same things, too, they would have whatever their nation is. Exceptionalism. It isn't about us as people. Uh, it's about the principles in which we adhere to. Uh, in other words, do we turn to God? Do we look at God above government? Do we acknowledge the creator of the universe? Do we? And any nation that does that will be exceptional. Let's be clear about that too, Lowell. Right. Totally agree. Absolutely right, Sam. America is exceptional not because we're America, but because of the principle in that we obey God's law. We, can, we consider Jesus Christ the king of this land. <clears throat> That's why we're exceptional. And any other country that, that wants to do that, they too would be exceptional. But and, and that's why at the outset of this article, Sam, I defined American exceptionalism as as I did. America could do no wrong because under that definition, then we can we can have this discussion and and come to understand and that my America combined with yours, America would do no wrong. Well, <laughs> that's right. That's absolutely right. Um, now, you know, the clear. Spanish. So we are exceptional in many ways, but we've fallen short in many ways. And that's why this article is dripping with sarcasm, because we've fallen way short. And in that, let's not pretend we're exceptional because we're not. That, that's right. You know, in DiLorenzo, he concludes his column with several observations, uh, quote, and so it went with the treasury of virtue, which morphed linguistically into American exceptionalism. And, and this is what paved the way for the never ending military interventionism of the 20th century and beyond up to the president or at the present day. The treasury of virtue has always been moral cover for all of the greed, racism, barbarianism and worse. <clears throat> now, the final two sentences of the column, quote, there is no longer any moral authority to use sanctions to destroy a country's economy for failing to do as we say. The decline of the dollar will inevitably speed up this progress process, which is good news for the world. End of quote. <laughs> and end of column. Now, <clears throat> yeah, let's not Sam, pretend our evil acts are American exceptionalism because that is a lie. Exactly right. Let's let's use the correct definition of American exceptionalism, this treasury of virtue idea. It's it's a treasury of virtue only if we're virtuous. <laughs> but if we're not virtuous, if we go around killing people without uh, due process, and if we go killing militaries of other countries without declaration of war, that is not virtuous, and therefore we and are advocating. Let's be very clear about the definition of virtuous. Mm -hmm. Sorry to interrupt, Lowell, but I want to make this very yeah. clear. God defines that, not us. He's the one that puts the Ten Commandments in place. He's the one that lays out what virtue and morality and, the, and the, these principles are. Uh, these are God-ordained principles that we adhere to. That's what makes anyone exceptional who obeys them. God is the most exceptional of all, to clarify the point. Truly, truly the case, Sam. And so in, as we as we leave this article now, having discussed this article 
And, and I really recommend people go to Mises.org to reread it because I've only highlighted a few points. DiLorenzo is, 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 is a great author and he makes these great points. And the lesson for us is that we need to look very objectively, critically at what the American empire is doing, what the U.S. presidency is doing, what the administration is actually doing, not what we think they're doing, not what, you know, we hope that they're doing because of American exceptionalism, because we believe this is God's country, right? We need to look at what they're actually doing, because actions speak louder than words. In our and, quest um, to become more exceptional as we turn to God, Lydia Nuttall helps out. We talked about Lydia Nuttall and her incredible book last week, hmm. Forgotten American Stories. It's tremendous, but Lowe wants to point to an example that really inspires us to be more exceptional in our lives, Lowell. Absolutely right. Chapter 2 of Lydia's book is about the Statue of Liberty. I learned a lot about this statue last night while reading this chapter and thought it, I would share it with you. The, the American states and the state of France both went through revolutions in the 1700s. Here's the background. France helped the American states gain their independence from King George III and from Parliament, but the French Revolution resulted in decades of government which promoted bloody violence, terror, war, and social unrest. Many Frenchmen, they wanted what the American states had. They wanted a republic. They wanted a constitutional republic just like us. So in 1865, a French patriot named Edward de uh, Laboulache, and, uh, and it's hard to pronounce, and maybe I'm butchering it because I don't know French, but Laboulache promoted the idea of gifting to America a monument representing liberty to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the American state's independence also to cement the friendship between France and the states, and to recognize the Frenchmen who sacrificed their lives for their beliefs in the unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as set forth in the Declaration of Independence. Right? So they wanted what we had, and they recognized that what America had was worth fighting for. So a fellow patriot, talented sculptor named Frederick Auguste Bartholdi, dedicated his time and his talents to the creation of the Statue of Liberty. And leaders in America, they promised to raise money to build a pedestal in, on which the statue would stand. So 10 years later, in 1875, the French people began to raise the $600,000 in 1880 dollars, by the way, required to fund the statue. Now, funds came primarily from the wealthy. America needed to raise about half that amount to build the pedestal, but they were about $100,000 short in 1884, and they couldn't seem to raise any more funds. Well, then along came Joseph Pulitzer, owner of a daily New York newspaper called The World. And I think, Sam, he's probably the very same Pulitzer who is portrayed in Newsies. Anyway, That's Pulitzer... one the same, my friend. One in the same? Okay, because in Newsies, he's portrayed kind of like a... Uh, unfeeling tyrant, you know. Well, but and everybody this, has both qualities, though. He was both. Really, that's what most of us are, right? To some degree. Yeah, because that's right, because we have the natural man and the spiritual man, and they fight against each other. <laughs> anyway, Joseph Pulitzer, he, he had emigrated from Hungary at the age of 17, 
And so in his newspaper, he began to strongly encourage everybody to donate. He says this, he wrote this, quote, Let us not wait for the millionaires. Give something, however little. We will publish the name of every giver, no matter how small the sum given. End of quote. Now, let's so be clear, donation, what he did was good, don't get me wrong, but he was aligned in this knowing he is popular to become, his paper would become incredibly popular if he did this too, though. So he's not stupid. That's for sure. <laughs> That's right. So <clears throat> me, donations swelled. They really began to pour in. And he also began to publish some of the letters that accompanied the donations, such as this one. Quote, I am a young man of foreign birth, and I've seen enough of monarchical government to appreciate the blessings of this republic. End of quote. Here's another one. Quote, now, I'm on. a little girl. Stop you there real quick and say Lydia Nuttle. It's her book that we're talking about here. She does a podcast on LovingLiberty.net called Ask an Immigrant that highlights the very stories that you just gave an example of, lol. That is so cool. Here's another letter. Quote, I'm a little girl, only six years old, and have 25 cents in my savings bank, which I send to help build the pedestal. End of quote. <laughs> so this is so awesome. So dollars and cents poured into the newspaper from working men and women, the elderly, the poor, the immigrants, the children. And within five months, Sam, the 100000 needed to complete the pedestal had been raised by more than 120,000 contributors. Now, when the pedestal was completed in April of 1886, workmen sprinkled coins into the mortar as a reminder that 120,000 gifts, most of them less than a dollar, had made that possible. <clears throat> I think it's so incredible. It's incredible. And by the way, $100,000 in 1880 is, 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 uh, amounts money, to over like $3.5 or more. Yeah, over $3 million in today's currency. Right, so that's a ton of money to that, but they were able to, uh, to 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 raise. Now, the the Statue of Liberty had two other names. I did not know this, Sam. One name was Liberty Enlightening the World. That's a wonderful name. That's really a wonderful name. And the other name she was known by was Mother of Exiles. That is so poignant, Mother of Exiles. So <clears throat> she was dedicated in 1886 on Bedloe's Island, later renamed Liberty Island in 18, 1956. And that island is located in New York Harbor. And, and she, she faces southeast to welcome all who enter New York Harbor. So if you're looking at her from New York, you see her, the back of her head, right? You see her back. But her front is pointed outward southeast to welcome everybody who enters New York Harbor. Now, Bartoldi, the sculptor, used a lot of symbolism in the statue. Liberty's seven spike-like rays emanating from her crown, they represent heaven's rays shining over the seven continents and the seven seas of the world. There's a broken shackle and chains lying at Liberty's feet. I didn't know that. These, these broken shackles and chains uh, represent freedom from oppression, tyranny, and servitude. The tablet she holds in her left hand represents a book of law. Inscribed on it is the date July 4th, 1776, written in Roman numerals. Wow, there's so much beautiful symbolism written into this and sculptured into this sculpture, Sam. A truly wonderful story in Lydia Nuttall's book, uh, forgotten American stories, Sam. To learn more Wonderful about Lydia stories. Nettle, lovingliberty.net. Check out her incredible podcast, Ask 
an immigrant. Great stuff. Thank you, Lowell Nelson, CampaignForLiberty.org. we got to stand with the Prince of Peace. Then we become exceptional. Not because of us, because of Jesus Christ himself. His grace is sufficient for us all. And this is the one and only Liberty Roundtable Live. God save the Republic of the United States of America.